We're dealing with this portion today because it is in the series that we are conducting, verse by verse, as it were, through the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of the Divine Servant. And so we are where we are in this particular passage, but I do reserve the right to come back again to this passage on the appropriate Lord's Day. I'm just warning you in advance. But what I want to do today is to speak again upon that which resulted from the message that was given at the tomb. Last time we were thinking upon the implications of that message for Mary herself, Mary Magdalene. And we spoke of the comfort given to Mary. If ever a woman loved the Lord Jesus Christ, it was Mary Magdalene. The Lord had done a mighty work in her life, transformed her life indeed. We're told here in Scripture that at one time she had been possessed by seven demons, which would have led her into all manner of sin and wickedness. Sin and wickedness, which is not stipulated. But the Lord set her free. The Lord cut the chains of her sin. And we find in the New Testament then, concerning this woman, that there are five different occasions in which she was in contact with the Savior. Now, I'm not going to do your homework for you, so you can look those up for yourself, where there are mentions made of Mary Magdalene. But I think I'm right in saying that by far the sweetest of all the events was the one that was recorded on resurrection morning and particularly fleshed out by the Gospel of John. When the angel appeared to her at the tomb, he gave comfort to Mary. The comfort was given to Mary because of the despair that she manifested. She felt a real despondency in her soul because as far as she was concerned, Jesus was dead. Like the other disciples, she had placed all her faith and trust in him, but now he was gone and she couldn't see anything beyond the tomb. She was really an illustration of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ be not risen, we are of all men most miserable. Mary was definitely in that category. She was miserable that particular day. With the loss of her Savior, she seemed to have lost the whole purpose for living. Nothing could ever take the place of Christ in her life. And so there was this despair that she manifested. But the word that was given served to comfort her. As well as the despair, there was the difficulty that she met. Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? She and the other ladies said that in verse 3. How are we going to deal with this impediment? This great stone that's over the burial chamber, over the, the, the hole in the rock that was the sepulchre. How are we going to get rid of that stone? And we talked about that last week. How that in Matthew 28 verse 2, there was a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. 
Mary and her friends saw a great difficulty, just as sometimes in our lives we anticipate great difficulties. But when she got to the tomb, the difficulty had already been taken care of. Because God had rolled the stone away, and now they had access to the empty tomb. And as well as the difficulty she met, where she found comfort, there is the discovery that she made, and that was in the fact that the stone was rolled away. But one thing that bothered her was the fact that the Savior was missing. She couldn't find the body of Christ. She should have realized, as the Lord had taught, that he was risen. That he wasn't there, but he was somewhere. He had risen bodily, but she believed, as many others believed, that somebody had taken him away. And we see that in John chapter 20, when she had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, she thought he was the gardener through her tears. She didn't recognize who it was. And she wanted him to tell her if he knew where the body of Jesus was so that she, yes, she could go and remove the body and take it away. I don't know how she thought she was going to do that. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of trying to move a dead person, a corpse. Many, many times I've had what I can consider to be a privilege of carrying, along with others, a casket containing the remains of a loved one or a friend or some acquaintance. And in our culture, back in Northern Ireland, we carry the casket on our shoulders. And sometimes it can be very, very heavy. Very heavy. Because it is literally what we call a dead weight. Can you imagine Mary, this woman, I don't know if she was a slight built woman or what, but she was going to take this body of Jesus and take it away. I think her hope was greater uh, than the reality. However, that was the love that she had for Christ. She was going to do this herself, if necessary, to look after his sacred remains. But the thing is, he wasn't dead. He was very much alive. And she had this blessed encounter with the Savior that we talked about last time in John chapter 20. And it brought great joy and delight to her heart. And so from then she became a messenger of the resurrection of Christ. Now we come to these verses. Mark chapter 16 verse 9 to the end of the chapter. And as I indicated in the Bible reading, there are some modern translations, modern versions of the scriptures that omit Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 completely making the excuse along these lines these verses are not found in the best or oldest manuscripts as I said during the Bible reading I take great issue with that because these verses are and have been a great blessing to God's people throughout the generations. By the way, I have a commentary that I have used in this series. And I was horrified to discover, when I got to the section of this man's commentary at the end, 
where I thought he was going to be expounding verses 9 through 20. Guess what he has to say about it? Nothing. The verses aren't even in his book. There are no comments on Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. For me, that's a disgrace. And the man is otherwise a good man. Much of what he has to say is of great benefit. But I thought to myself, this is the fruit of compromise. And this is the kind of thing that you have in churches right across our nation and across our world. Men who will come to the scripture and will cast doubt on the veracity of it by telling people that they agree with the statement, these verses are not found in the best and oldest manuscripts. By the way, these are not the only verses where this applies. There are many, many examples of that. And if you were, for example, to take down the New International Version, if you have one, just look in the footnotes of the New International Version, especially in the New Testament, at the number of times when a footnote will be attached which says, these verses are not found in the oldest and best manuscript. Or when you come to Matthew 16, and the Bible says that Peter had this conversation with the Lord, where he says, upon this rock I will build my church. The NIV has a footnote there which says that Peter, Petros, means rock. Which is actually teaching the papacy, the doctrine of the papacy, within the body of Scripture. But I don't want to get into a whole conversation today about versions and textual criticism. You'll find sermons of mine online when I dealt with this in Bible classes some time ago. But let's think about this. If these verses 9 through 20 are not really belonging in the Bible at all, is that conceivable to you that the writer, Mark, would finish his gospel with the tears of Mark 16, verse 8? Because that's how it finishes there. They were afraid. That's how it finished. It would leave the book unfinished and in the gloom of despondency. But I'm glad that the Holy Spirit is not only the author of the Bible, he's the preserver of the Bible. And the gospel is not complete, as one writer said, when it ends in fear and tears. Instead of the tears of frustration, the final verses of Mark's gospel actually offer the triumph of the gospel and the resurrection. And furthermore, everything that you read, as we did, from verse 9 to verse 20, is in total and exact harmony with the other three gospels, as well as with the rest of the contents of Mark's gospel. It's not out of place. For example, there's no new doctrine introduced here. There's no major doctrine that has been altered or changed or diminished in these verses. And unlike my friend's commentary that finishes at verse 8 of Mark 16, I'm glad to be able to preach on through to the end of Mark's gospel using the remaining verses. You see, the glory of that resurrection morning changed hopelessness to hope in the hearts of men. 
Mary Magdalene was one who was filled with gloom and despair. But she left the scene that day in the heights of joy. And I'm glad today that we serve a risen Savior. Notice in the words of the angel, Mark 16 and verse 6. In the middle of the verse, He is risen. He is not here. I believe that in this particular word, we have this doctrine of the resurrection, confidence given to the disciples. There's great confidence given to the disciples, as well as comfort given to Mary. See, the attitude of these men was characterized by stubborn unbelief. You read this all the way through the gospel records as they speak of the aftermath of the resurrection of Christ. Not only had these men run away, not only had they fled prior to his death, even when he was arrested in the garden, but they had zero faith in the promise that he had repeated over and over to them. That after his death, on the third day, he would rise again. Notice how we read in John's Gospel concerning this matter. In John chapter 2, the Lord Jesus had made a statement, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews thought he was talking about Solomon's temple that took 46 years to build. But that's not what he was talking about. He was speaking, the Holy Spirit tells us, about the temple of his body. Now, John 2 verse 22 says, When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Yes, they did. Eventually. But not at the beginning. Not at the start. When he was first risen from the dead, and even when they were told about it, they still did not believe. Just read the latter part of each gospel for yourself. Twice, Mark reminds us, in chapter 16, that they refused to believe either the message of the women that Jesus had risen, or the testimony of the two who had met with the Lord in the way. Look at these verses. Mark 16, verse 11. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, this is Mary Magdalene, believed not. They more or less called Mary Magdalene a liar. Read on. After that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. We know them as the two on the Emmaus road. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. So here they are. Mary Magdalene says, Jesus is alive. I've talked to him. He's risen. They didn't believe it. The two on the road to Emmaus, they had an experience with the risen Christ. They went and told the eleven who were gathered in the upper room, Jesus is alive. Neither believed they them. Full of unbelief. But of course Mark, in his gospel, shows us 
if you like, three strands of infallible proof of the resurrection of Jesus that gave great confidence to the disciples, that changed their unbelief to faith. Notice the absence, first of all, a missing body. The absence, a missing body. What did the angel say in verse 6? He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Look for yourselves. There's no body there. And they would have thought immediately, well, where is the body of Jesus? He's missing. You see, the empty tomb in itself was not the evidence that the Lord had risen. Let's get that straight. The fact that the tomb is empty does not of itself tell you that the Lord has risen. The only thing that the tomb that's empty would say is that he was not there. And of course there were those who used the opportunity to teach that the empty tomb just suggested that Jesus had actually swooned in the weakness of his suffering on the cross. There are those who have taught that in history, what's called the swoon theory, that the Lord was not actually dead, he was comatose. I would say to you, it's very difficult to think that the Lord was not dead when a soldier took a spear and put it up in through his heart. Anybody who swooned and survived that, well, that's something else. People just, you see, don't look at the whole picture of Scripture. Just come up with some theory and it sounds good. But that's what people have said. And so when he was in the tomb, because of the coldness of the tomb, he came round from his comatose state and when he was revived, he rolled away the stone himself. Well, again, that's absurd because the stone was sealed from the outside, not from the inside. But then there were others who alleged that the disciples had come during the night at great risk to themselves, of course, while the, while the soldiers were sleeping, which was a penalty, if they were guilty of it, would, would, would suffer the penalty of death. They would have been killed by the Roman authorities for falling asleep on duty. But we're expected to believe, as the Jews taught, that they fell asleep, the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus away and hid it somewhere. And of course we think about that and wonder at the stupidity of that theory because here are men, let's face it, who were cowards at the beginning. When they came to arrest the Lord, where were they? They all ran away. They fled. The Bible tells us that they were in the upper room after Jesus died for fear of the Jews. They were afraid to be seen or caught. Here's these men running away, hiding in a room because they're afraid of the Jews. But they've got such courage all of a sudden that they're going to risk their lives in front of Roman soldiers and steal the body of Jesus away. And then they're going to, in the remainder of their lives, suffer persecution and eventually martyrdom in the case of most of them in order to perpetuate a lie. Do you believe that? Are we supposed to believe that? That these men were willing to die as martyrs 
for a cause that they knew to be false? Folks, if the enemies of the Lord had been able to produce the Lord's body, they would have done so in order to destroy the testimony of the apostles about the resurrected Christ. This is the great problem for those who don't believe in the resurrection. He is not here. He is risen. That one brief word, as one man put it, announces the greatest miracle ever wrought on earth. It is the door to understanding Jesus Christ. With these words, the angel invites these at the tomb to take a look. He is not here. Look, see the place where they laid him. Every theory, ancient and modern, all objections about the validity of the resurrection of Jesus are shattered by this one question. What became of Christ's body? That's the question. What became of his body? Now, even the most extreme skeptics don't deny that the grave was empty, including the early Jewish polemicists. But where was the body? The Jews didn't have it, because if they did, they would have produced it post-haste. Make no mistake about that. They would have produced his body right away in order to scotch this whole idea of resurrection. But they never did. The disciples didn't have the body, because if they did, it would have been psychologically and spiritually impossible for them to live that dedicated martyr's life and die the martyr's death if they did. There's some foolish people today who believe uh, the writings of a man called Hugh Sconfield, the Passover plot, and they believe that Elvis is alive. But listen, the body of Elvis was not only found, but was buried. That the disciples were totally convinced that the Lord Jesus, however, had risen is beyond doubt. And if somebody today says to you, I don't believe in your doctrine of the resurrection, just ask them the question, what happened to the body of Jesus? Where is it? It's never been found. Now the church of Rome thinks that it's found a cloth that was laid over his face and it's called the, the Shroud of Turin. But there's absolutely no evidence that that had anything whatsoever to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, if, as one man said, all the bits of the cross purporting to be from the original cross of Christ were put together, you could build a whole bunch of houses. Church of Rome loves to specialise in hoaxes. The bleeding bone of St. Gerard. I told you about that, didn't I? In a part of Belfast where I never used to go because it was too dangerous. But there was a chapel there, a Roman Catholic church. And inside there they had this on show. The bleeding bone of St. Gerard. Whoever he was. And every little bit this would supposed to look like a small finger used to express blood that's what they said I remember thinking if that was even true which it isn't but if it was true so what what good would that do anyone or the fact that a statue was supposed to be bowing to people in Chicago all those years ago do you remember that 
I was going to tell a joke there, but I better keep this serious. It's to do with Dr. Paisley and the statue fainting when I saw him bowing. But anyway, the absence of the body, that is proof, if proof were needed, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, no one witnessed the moment when God raised Jesus from the dead. That is true. No human eye saw that. But the silence of the empty tomb declared that Jesus had conquered death and had been raised from the dead and the missing body is a real problem for those who don't believe in resurrection. The absence a missing body. Another thing that gave confidence to the disciples it is the assurance a message brought. And we're talking about the words of the angel in verse 6 onwards. Here's the assurance in the message brought. What is an angel? An angel is actually a messenger. In fact, the word angel, angelos, may be translated messenger. And it is to be translated so in the book of Revelation when you have each angel of the church. It means messenger. Talking about the minister in each case. But here you have an angel, an actual heavenly angel, with a brief Startling and yet specific message. What was it? Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 6. I know why you're here. Don't be afraid. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall you see him as he said unto you. There's great assurance in this message that was brought to them. The message from the angel, you see, was crucial. Without it, these disciples would, they would have known that the Lord was not there, of course, but they would not have known that he was risen. They would not have known why he wasn't there. But the angel gave them that message. And in that message, there was tremendous reassurance for these men. Wouldn't that give them great confidence in going out, preaching the gospel? We serve a risen, living Savior. We're not worshipping a memory. We're not just rejoicing in the thought that we once knew a man who's now dead, who did great things. But we're serving one who is alive forevermore, who is with us, who accompanies us as we go about our gospel work. So there's the confidence that was given to the disciples. And as well as what was said about the absence, a missing body, and the assurance in a message brought, you have the appearances the Master beheld. The appearances, they're mentioned here in verse 9, in verse 12, and verse 14. Verse 9, now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Now we can read a fuller account of this in John chapter 20. And it's a beautiful story. 
as we've already noticed. But then in verse 12 of Mark 16, it tells us that after that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And if you were to compare Luke chapter 24, you'll find that one of them was called Cleopas. There were two of them. And as they walked, their hearts burned within them as the Lord talked to them by the way and opened to them the Scriptures. We read there that beginning at Moses and in all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself the whole way as they walked that distance. Jesus was expounding in a Bible study with them the Scriptures. But then it says in verse 14, Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. By the way, how did the Lord know that he didn't believe, they didn't believe these people? Because he's God. He knows everything. The Lord knew that they were in a state of unbelief. And now he chided them for that. But the appearances of the Savior here The three that are mentioned here are just part of an overall story of when the Master was beheld 11 times. And you can look them up for yourself. There are 11 appearances of the Lord, but Mark just hones in on three of them. First, he appeared to Mary in the garden, Mary Magdalene. Second, he appeared to the couple on the road to Emmaus. And thirdly, he appeared to Peter and the other disciples in the upper room. Think of them. Mary, who had lost the one that she loved. That couple walking on the road who had lost their hope. We had hoped, they said. We had hoped that he would be the one to deliver Israel. They'd lost their hope. And then the disciples had lost their faith. They had been totally devastated with the events of that week. Think of how they started out. So confidently with the Savior riding into Jerusalem on that beast. There was all this promise apparently of the coming kingdom. The king of the Jews riding on that animal in great triumph. And people shouting Hosanna in the, in the highest. And then it all seemed to go south for them with the arrest of Christ. The trial, the mockery, the suffering and the death of Christ. And Mark tells us. But they were weeping. They were weeping. It caused great tears and great distress in their hearts. Tells us that in verse 10. That Mary and Magdalene went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. Imagine that scene in the upper room. It would have been very touching, I'm of no doubt about that. Eleven men all crying, crying out loud because their master was gone. And why were they crying? Because of unbelief. The reality was very much different from what they thought. And when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared, He reprimanded them for their dashed hopes and their unbelief. And he proved to them that he was alive 
even as he had promised to be several times before he died. We don't have it here, but if you study the other Gospels, you'll find that he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. The Bible puts it that way. They knew him by the print of the nails in his hands. And the hymn writer said, that's how we will know him. I shall know him. I shall know him. As redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him. I shall know him by the print of the nail in his hands. I want you to notice the special mention that's made of Peter here, however. This is a beautiful thing. Did you notice how the angel put it? When he spoke to Mary Magdalene, verse 7, he said, But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter. Why would he say that? Why would he not just say, tell his disciples? Because Peter was one of the disciples. Oh, you see, there's a, there's a special mention of Peter here. You know why? Because Peter, the last time he was with the Lord, was when he denied the Lord. We've already dealt with that in a former message. There he is, warming his hands at the fire with the enemies of the Lord. He's denying the Lord with oaths and curses. I don't know him. What are you talking about? I don't know this man. Totally disowned the Savior before the enemies. Pretending not to have anything to do with Christ. And of course he saw the Lord looking at him in the aftermath of his betrayal and he wept bitterly. But he hasn't seen the Lord since that. Until he comes himself then to the garden tomb. But in the meantime, before that happened, the special mention of Peter by the angel. Go and tell his disciples and Peter, that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, as he said unto you. And it says, They went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre. For they, were, they trembled and were amazed, neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now why is Peter mentioned in such a way? Tell the disciples and Peter. Because the Lord was being merciful to Peter. We discover that also in John chapter 21 when the Lord himself had special dealings with Peter on the seashore. But this reveals to us, as old Bishop Ryle said, the exceeding kindness of God toward his backsliding servants. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were bid to tell the disciples that Jesus goeth before them into Galilee, that there they shall see him. But the message is not directed generally to the eleven apostles. This alone, after their late desertion of their master, would have been a most gracious action. Yet, Simon Peter, who had denied his Lord three times, especially mentioned by name. Peter, who had sinned particularly, is singled out and noticed particularly. There were to be no exceptions in the deed of grace. All were to be pardoned. All were to be restored to favour. Simon Peter as well as 
the rest. The Lord is one who delighteth in mercy. And sometimes we might feel like Peter, that we have denied the Lord in a particular way more than others have. We don't deserve the Lord's mercy, we don't deserve His grace. But yet, let me tell you, the Lord has a special word for such. The Lord has a special regard for such. Peter, I know what you've done. Peter, I know how much you've denied me. I know how you've betrayed me in that sense. But Peter, I want you to know that I'm risen from the dead. I still love you, Peter. I still want to use you, Peter. What a wonderful, encouraging word that would be. The appearances the Master beheld. A man that I know very well who was a missionary in Brazil, writing on the matter of the resurrection of Christ, he came up with an outline that I could not improve upon when he talked about what the resurrection does. He said three things. Number one, what does the resurrection prove? First of all, the resurrection substantiates that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Secondly, the resurrection authenticates every claim Jesus Christ ever made. And thirdly, the resurrection demonstrates that all power belongs to the Savior. Let's think of those three briefly in turn before we finish. The resurrection substantiates that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You see the empty tomb? It is a mighty declaration. It is a loud statement of fact that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. How do we know that? Because the scripture says it. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle put it like this. From verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by the prophets, by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That's what the resurrection declares. This is no ordinary man. This is the Son of God, just as he claimed to be. Now beyond the empty tomb, there was the testimony of all those who met him in his post-resurrected state. You can read 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul will tell you there about the whole multitude that had seen the Lord. Above 500 of them at one time, on one occasion. And they saw, and they testified that he was the Son of God. And the Apostle John, writing about that, said, this is the Son of God. So the resurrection substantiates the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The resurrection authenticates every claim that Jesus Christ ever made. Now you think about all the claims of Christ during his ministry. What he said he was, what he claimed to do, what he promised, what he predicted. Think of all those claims. They would have been 
completely rejected and shown to be foolish if the Lord had not risen from the dead. He would have actually been proved to be telling lies rather than the truth if he had not risen from the dead because he said he was going to rise from the dead and if he didn't then he wasn't telling the truth. He was an imposter. But as we read 1 Corinthians 15 we discover that Christ is risen indeed. His word is true. And we preach the gospel of a glorious risen Christ. But there's a third thing. The resurrection demonstrates that all power belongs to the Savior. Didn't he say that himself at the end of Matthew's gospel? All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. The word power there means authority. All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The Savior defeated the devil in the wilderness when he was tempted. In Gethsemane, when the devil came, he resisted Satan unto blood and with earnest cries and prayers and tears. And finally, in death, the Lord Jesus Christ destroyed him who had the power of death. That is, destroyed his power, destroyed his influence in that sense. Ultimately, the devil, we know his end, spoken of in the book of Revelation, is going to be cast into the lake of fire. So in that sense, we can't say the devil now is destroyed. He's still active. He's still working. But yet the death of Christ is for the destruction of the works of the devil and ultimately of the devil himself. All power in this universe belongs to the Savior. Remember that when you start to get anxious about political matters, when you become anxious about what's going on in this world, and who is really in control, and who's really in charge, and who's really pulling all the strings financially and otherwise. Remember this. Jesus said it. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That has not changed in 2022. That was true when Jesus rose that day of the resurrection. It's still true today. God says in his word, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. You read that in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is not just some future prediction. Psalm number 2 is for today. It's true today. What does it say? Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. The United Nations. NATO. Any earthly organization, even if there was such a thing as a global cabal running the financial affairs of men, even if there was such a thing, They're against the Lord and against His anointed. They say, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Look at verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. (laughs) That's in the Bible. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. You know, you don't read very much in the Bible about the Lord laughing, do you? 
You certainly don't read about Christ in his earthly ministry ever laughing. The Lord didn't come on a joke. The Lord didn't come on a fun expedition. It was serious work that the Savior was involved in. But here we have a verse in the Bible that tells us, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Why does he laugh? Because of puny men who think that they're in control, who think that they've got all this power and authority. The Bible says the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. The judgment is coming. But look at verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Jesus reigns. He's upon the throne. And we could sing with that very famous song, The King is Coming. The King is Coming. Thank God the risen Christ is a reality for us. He is risen. He is reigning. And that will be made clear one day when every knee shall bow and every single tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I remember Dr. Paisley many times with that jolly laughter of his in the pulpit saying, Brother, and I'm looking forward to seeing old Papa bowing his knee before Christ. People bowing their knee before him kissing his toe or his ring. He'll be bowing before Christ and he'll be confessing every one of the popes and every other king and every other religious person who rejected the Lord will be bowing the knee before King Jesus because all authority is given unto him in heaven and on earth. And on that note of victory we finish today. May the Lord encourage our hearts with the thought that Jesus is risen from the dead.